You're listening to On the Other Hand, bringing you different perspectives for everyday problems. I'm one of your hosts, Julia Meadows. In our fourth episode, we begin a two-part series on the languages of love, a complex and misunderstood facet of relationships, both romantic and platonic, that is often the cause of many fights and rifts in marriages and friendships. How often have we felt at one time or another that someone just didn't appreciate us the way we hoped they would, or that our actions towards them were not enough to satisfy some unknown quota of affection? Christopher Levan has a vast amount of experience in trying to help couples make amends and learn each other's languages of loving, so naturally he has a great wealth of knowledge on the topic. Without further ado, here is part one of this series. Listen and enjoy. Speaking your language of loving, part one, a matter of translation. In 1906, an earthquake that ran to 8.2 on the Richter scale hit San Francisco, an horrendous event, killing between 500 and 700 inhabitants. Untold casualties, not just the result of structural collapse, the earthquake ignited gas lines that resulted in a maelstrom which burned for three days. The fires destroyed 490 city blocks. A total of 25,000 buildings were lost, making 250,000 people homeless. It stands as an historic legend and perhaps as a dark portent of the big one everyone on the West Coast is expecting anytime soon. Eyewitnesses to that 1906 earthquake describe their experiences this way. We had found ourselves staggering and reeling, they said. It was as if the earth was slipping gently from under our feet, and then came the sickening swaying of the earth that threw us flat upon our faces. We struggled in the street. We could not get on our feet. If you Google the San Francisco 1906 earthquake, you'll discover it holds a dubious distinction as the greatest human disaster in American history. But little is made of its power as a spiritual symbol. At the time, it was seen by many as evidence of divine intervention in human affairs. God is speaking to those who will listen. What is known now as the Pentecostal movement began in Los Angeles just 10 days before that earthquake hit. Under the guidance of William Seymour at the Azusa Street Mission in downtown Los Angeles, believers had begun to gather. They were waiting for a sign and the 1906 earthquake fit the bill perfectly. The confirmation of the end times. God's judgment on a corrupt world was writ large. The long-awaited kingdom is coming. It's just on the other side of the broken buildings and the ravaging fires. Spiritual expectations at the mission mounted to a fevered pitch. And then, as later church historians will explain it, the fire fell. The fire fell on that gathered community and the people began to speak in tongues. Like the original day of Pentecost 1900 years before, the Christians at Azusa Street began to talk in foreign languages, unbidden and seemingly uncontrolled. And not just once, but day after day, whole congregations joined in uttering strange words using syntactical patterns and tonal textures which had every appearance of being a new language. 
And after sweeping across the United States, this Pentecostal movement spread to missions around the world. Many believers left for Africa and Asia, believing that they had all they needed in order to preach the good news. After all, God had given them a true capacity to speak foreign languages. They had only to open their hearts to the heaven-sent fire, and the ecstatic utterances they would be sent would be understood by their audience. For years, they stood at the front of small gatherings of non-English-speaking believers, and as they uttered their spiritual languages, they thought they were being understood. <laughs> it seems outlandish now, but those original Pentecostals assumed that when they spoke under the influence of the Spirit, they were actually using a foreign language. Well, I can understand their hope. It's an intoxicating idea. Without practice or preparation, one could speak a foreign tongue. It's brilliant! It's also quite a bummer when they discovered it doesn't work that way. I have the same dismay and disappointment when I speak with couples who want to get married. As a pastor, it happens often enough. Come and sit beside me in my study as we speak with people who are also intoxicated by loving, and you'll hear what I mean. Here's my thesis. Expressing loving is like speaking a language. You'll find greater detail in Gary Chapman's text, The Five Languages of Love, if you'd look for it. Even though we all do it, long to feel it, share it, and express it, loving is not as simple as we might hope. As wild and wonderful as the human heart can be, the ways of expressing love are multifaceted and varied, sometimes comprehended perfectly, often misunderstood. Think of loving like you would speaking a verbal language. We all grow up with an original or mother tongue that comes to us unconsciously, and we speak without effort or reflection. Indeed, our thoughts sometimes occur while we're speaking. But other languages, the ones we call foreign, have to be learned. Well, that's how it is with loving. When it comes to expressing deep affection, we, we have a mother tongue, a, a primary unconscious way of showing our love. And while to us, our language of loving seems totally obvious and thoroughly understandable, not everyone speaks the same language. Loving, you see, is more complex. Those who speak our language have no trouble comprehending our feelings. But for those who use a different language, our expressions of loving may be incomprehensible or, or even offensive. And here's the thing. I meet couples all the time who, like those early Pentecostals, speak their language of loving with the misguided assumption that they are being perfectly clear. They live with the illusion that their beloved understands them. And alas, when matrimony is in the air, everyone is ignoring the error messages. It's tragic. How much pain can we avoid if we only appreciate that our languages of loving are not shared by others? The more we concentrate on recognizing and learning the actual loving language of another, the more meaningful and rewarding our relationship will become. You see, it's a matter of translation, getting the message right. There was once a missionary couple who were commissioned to travel to the north to be chaplains of a First Nations community. There were no roads to this village, and so they flew in on a float plane and disembarked with their translator, only to be met by the entire community on the dock. It was time for introductions, and so the missionary husband, being the more experienced of the couple, took the lead, offering his gratitude for their welcome. He would speak a short phrase and then allow the interpreter to translate. It all went well, 
with smiles on every face, until the conclusion when the missionary said with great bravado, My wife and I are just tickled to death to be here. The translator stumbled, paused, said something, and a quizzical look spread across the crowd, and they shuffled their feet and looked askance at each other. But this moment of awkwardness quickly passed, and they proceeded up the hill to enjoy an evening of hospitality. And during a lull in the festivities, the missionary got a chance to check signals with his interpreter, and he asked, What happened down there on the dock? Why was everyone looking quizzical at the conclusion of my speech? The translator admitted that he didn't know quite how to translate that final phrase, tickled to death. So he told the assembled community that the missionary and his wife had scratched themselves and died. <laughs> Translation is a tricky business with verbal languages and with languages of love. When I lectured arts students, I would preface what you're about to hear with a guarantee. This is going to be the most valuable lecture you will get at university. Taking to heart the wisdom of languages of loving will save you endless heartache in broken relationships and a considerable amount of money in lawyers' fees. So listen up. There are six languages of loving, and while we all know about them in a vague sort of way, there is one that is our mother tongue. When we speak it, we are being most clear, and more importantly, when we hear it, we know ourselves to be loved. Now, a quick footnote. Most of the languages of loving are not actual uttered words. They are gestures or forms of nonverbal communication. But like verbal languages, each of the six modes of loving have their own vocabulary and syntax, so to speak. And once we accept that, then we recognize our task of loving and being loved is not simply a matter of the heart, but also of the head. We have to interpret the other's language to unravel what they're saying and meaning. Now, I'll run through the six languages of loving systematically. And as I do it, here's a picture to keep in your mind, a portrait of miscommunication. There's a loving couple, deeply loving. The husband, he's out in the garage, cleaning the shelves and detailing the car. He has bags of garbage ready for the dump. The wife is in the house, sitting on the living room's couch. She has a pot of tea and a can of beer at the ready. Could it be any clearer? They are both shouting their love. And yet, they are both utterly miserable. Remember that couple. Now, the six languages of loving. Let's put them in two groups, one tangible and the other intangible. The first of the tangible languages of love is touch. We speak love through physical contact. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, that's me. That's how I love. <laughs> but I don't mean sexual caressing. Everybody can do groping when the mood hits us. In those moments of passion, we quite naturally use touch and caress to telegraph our intentions. No, this first language of loving is more about constant and regular touching. You'll see it in a couple when they lean in together, often touching with a hand sliding across the other's back or a playful shove. When something important is happening, they're holding hands, rocking back and forth close. A while back, I took a tour to Paris in which there was a couple who's used touch to express love, and they were both over 80, and yet 
When anything significant took place, Jenny would grab Bert's arm to tell him he'd always hold out his arm for her to take as they mounted stairs. It was constant, and while it seems so obvious, touching, in fact, is not as common a language of loving as you might think. The second tangible language of loving is gifting. We express our deep affections by giving. Again, it, it seems natural enough, but I'm not talking about birthday gifts or anniversary presents. Everyone goes through these rituals. They're almost obligatory in relationships. Who doesn't like a present? But the ones who speak gifting as their language of loving are doing more, so much more. It's all about the surprise, the spontaneity, the unexpected gift. For these people, a gift is not simply sharing a surprise. They're laying open their heart. That's not a dozen roses. It's partly the surprise of an unsolicited gift, partly the beseeching message of wanting to have contact, and the intimacy of meeting another's desires. Gifters never show up without a something to share. Movie tickets, apple pie, seashells from the beach, the latest viral video. They share their love with an offering, and they do it without being asked. That's, that's very important. Once the gift is either predictable or a response to a request, well, it, it loses its zest and depth. If you wonder if gifting is your language, here's a simple test. Look at your hands when you show up at a lover's door. If you're holding something, you probably speak gifting as your language of loving. The third tangible language of loving is acts of service. If there is a gender bias in languages of love, then it is fair to argue that men often use acts of service to convey their love. I love you, so I clean out the car. I love you, I vacuum the living room. I love you, I build you a garden shed. I recall once telling my father that I didn't think he loved me. We were standing in the middle of the cottage complex. He had built it with his bare hands, two cottages, two sleeping cabins, a floating dock, flotilla of boats, and my father was dumbfounded. He looked around at everything he had built, and for him, it was self-evident. Every nail and rock, every pathway and deck was like a symphony of loving. Could he be any clearer? For those who use acts of service to express loving, there's no substitute for getting breakfast in bed or someone taking out the garbage. And those who use this language of loving do their acts of service without being asked. They do it lovingly, freely. In fact, allowing them to do their act of service, uninhibited or unassisted, is important because it's not the accomplishment of the task itself that is essential, so much as the deeper meaning that their gestures convey. Now we'll switch the gender bias as we look at the three intangible languages of loving. The first intangible language of loving is often used by women, time. I show my love by spending time with my beloved. It's all about closing the circle, establishing communion, spending time together in undivided attention to one another. It doesn't really matter what we are doing together. It could be attending a children's concert or building a model train set. The point is we're doing it together. People who use time as their method of expressing affection wake up in the morning and say, why don't we, or let's, you see, their frame of reference is the we of any relationship, and there is serious joy in the prospect of having time to deepen that connection. 
I recall one time sleeping through a thunderstorm with my wife, and when the lightning bolt hit close to the house, it sent such a shudder through the bedroom that my wife woke me up, saying, I'm scared. Did that hit the house? I sat up in bed and replied, It's okay. I'm here. Nothing can go wrong, and fell back to sleep. She stayed awake, fuming. Her plea was for communion, to know she was not alone, and I responded like a typical male, thinking I was being asked to fix something and had offered myself as the solution. <laughs> Great white male will solve lightning problem. <laughs> now let's pause right here and remember that couple we left back a few minutes ago. He's in the garage, remember, cleaning up, and she's in the living room waiting. Do you see now how they could be both acting in a profoundly loving fashion toward the other, and yet both be miserable, feeling invisible and unloved? He's waiting for her to come out to the garage so he can show her how much he loves her and the things he's done. And she's in the living room wishing he would just come in here and sit with her so she could help him see her deep regard for him. Well, it wouldn't take much for their love to grow cold, even turn to animosity. Not because they're not loving, but because they are caught in a problem of translation. Neither can understand the other's language of loving. How did the people from the earthquake put it? It was as if the earth was slipping gently from under our feet. Then came the sickening swaying that threw us flat upon our faces. We struggled. We could not get to our feet. Isn't that what happens to our loving? It gently slips out from under us, and we can't get back on our feet again. There are two more languages of love to describe, and you can catch them in our next podcast, and we'll then be able to explore how languages of loving and hating can sometimes use the same vocabulary. In the meantime, let's just sit with the fact that we are never as clear as we imagine ourselves to be, even in a podcast. Or, on the other hand, this is Christopher Levan. Thank you for listening to our fourth episode, which is the first part of our two-part series on languages of love. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to keep up to date with our uploads, we encourage you to check us out on Facebook as well as iTunes, where you can download episodes for free to listen to on mobile devices. Links to both are available on our main SoundCloud page. This was episode four of On the Other Hand. Thank you for tuning in.